Blog Talk Radio. Looking for informative educational sports radio and not the same banter and even non-related subjects on sports radio? Then Sports Beat, your alternative, is next as part of Mountain Meadow Productions. Stay tuned. Productions and Sportsbeat Radio, this is Sportsbeat, a provocative, insightful, informative, and educational show that we hope will educate the sports listener to the specific of sports. With interviews, analysis, and a comprehensive look at the topics we feel will be appealing to the listener, and so with that in mind, we're not just your average call-in, same subject, same question, over and over sports radio. We like to think of ourselves as informative and educational radio. So why not sit back and for the next 30 minutes or so, we hope you'll find the program informative, educational, and above all, enjoyable. And with that said and done, this is Sports Beat, and we're coming at you live. And I'm your host, John Spoolis. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this Tuesday program, the 30th day of August. Two more days left today and tomorrow, and then we're into September. And this is really the fastest time of the year, believe it or not, from August until, before you know it, it's Christmas and New Year. All of the holidays that come up, Columbus Day and Halloween, you're carving the turkey, and then you're opening gifts, and then you're hoisting the brewski for another year. Couldn't be any more bizarre than some of the years that we've just witnessed. But nonetheless, thanks so much for joining us on this segment of Sports Beat Radio Talking Sports. And today, we're going to be talking about, uh, as you remember, we are an educational sports radio. We're not talking uh, to callers and so forth. And 99.9, I think 100% of sports radio is basically calling. And I'm not sure what you learn after the four-hour segments of some of these guys who are on, because it's their opinion against the opinions of the fans who call in, and uh, they tell me that uh, call-in is the most popular. But I don't know that it's that educational, but be that as it may, if that's what you like, that's fine. And so today, our educational sports radio is going to talk about the white football in NFL history. Now, no, this isn't a racist thing. Somebody had mentioned that the other day when they saw it. Uh, some people had asked some questions about it, but it was actually uh, the actual history of the football that was once used in the NFL, which was white. And I, somebody had mentioned it the other, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and I thought that would be kind of an interesting show. Because a lot of people don't even realize it exists. I mean, you'd have to probably be in your 60s uh, to maybe not even remember it, but at least know about it, probably even older, because I think they stopped using the white football uh, somewhere in the 50s. And one of the reasons of its uh, incentive was because of the first uh, night games didn't have the kind of lighting that they have now, the sophisticated tungsten lighting and all the stuff that they have now today, um, you know, illuminates pretty well. It's interesting, though, still some of the colors aren't realistic. You know, like purple still isn't really purple, no matter how high-tech. When you watch the um, Minnesota Vikings sometimes, it's probably not as much today as it once was, but they almost kind of look bluish 
purple was a tough color. It needed a lot of light. But nonetheless, uh, the white football, why was it used? When was it used? And I think it's a, kind of an interesting situation with it that we, um, you know, bring it up because, as I said, there were people that, you know, wanted to know about uh, this particular uh, thing. So when we look at it, uh, the white football, long really before the playing under the lights was considered prime time, it was really an oddity that called for a most unusual piece of equipment. Now, we've seen football, uh, even though it's basically the same game as it's been probably for, I don't know, 50 years. You know, if you look at Super Bowl One and look at some of the video from Super Bowl One, you know, the game isn't really that much changed. I mean, the blocking patterns are different. Uniforms are, you know, they use the three-quarter sleeves in those days. Helmets certainly are different, high-tech, non-concussion, although players still get concussions. Um, there's a little bit of difference, you know, the shoes are different, linemen used to wear, you know, high tops, and even Johnny Unitas wore those uh, probably as much publicized high tops as Joe Namath's, uh, I believe they were Puma white shoes, low cut. So, you know, when you look at it all, the Providence Steamrollers meeting the Chicago Cardinals, it was on November 6, 1929, was the first NFL game played at night. And the teams used a white ball in case of the foundering uh, floodlights. So the white football, which is a local newspaper compared to a large egg, seemingly apt to crack each time it was passed through the air, actually outlasted the steamroller franchise and being used well into the 50s. It was showcased by Otto Graham. Now, if you look at pictures of Otto Graham, uh, you will see him using that white football. We do have uh, one of them posted on our uh, slide display. For the show. And the uh, Cleveland Browns on the evening of September 16, 1950, when they made a roaring entrance into the NFL by stunning the defending champion Philadelphia Eagles, it even snuck into new football trading cards of that era. But there were some drawbacks. Players complained that it was slippery and hard to distinguish from white uniforms. And by 1956, the white football was extinct in the NFL, rendered needless by high watt floodlights and TV lighting requirements. And kind of a shame, if only for the fact that it could have been a star during the power outage of Super Bowl. If you remember the Super Bowl, that they lost the uh, power for a little while. So players like Max Speedy, he carried the ball uh, on September 1950 in a night game, a white football. And, you know, the, the uh, essence of uh, the white football uh, continued. And that's basically why they uh, used uh, the white football. I remember when I was younger, my mother, who really knew nothing about sports, had mentioned to me when we talked about football, she said she, she didn't know much about football, but she remembers the white football. And I always thought she was kind of fooling me. You know, I thought, well, she doesn't really know anything about sports. How could, how could she know about a white football? I thought maybe she was smoking something in the back room. But sure enough... Uh, we didn't have the Internet then, of course, and uh, I remember looking in the library and seeing uh, pictures of the white football, Otto Graham and some of those players uh, in the uh, yesteryear. So some of the questions that we had I wanted to answer, uh, I thought they were very good questions, people writing in and asking since they saw the show about the white football. And 
there was a time when, as I said, the NFL had white stripes on them, the, the uh, stripes on the football. People wondered why are there no stripes on NFL footballs. Now, the, there are white stripes in the Canadian Football League. They use a white stripe football on both ends. Uh, college uses the white stripe. Uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken, I thought the uh, USFL used a non-white stripe ball as well as the XFL. Uh, we'll find out that again next year. But uh, actually, those who've been watching football, NFL football, for a very long time know that once uh, used white footballs along with black stripes on them, and that's uh, clearly evident on our slideshow, and all, all you have to do is look at autogram pictures and you'll see it. Uh, but the paint used to make the stripes made the football slick, so they stopped using striped footballs. So why did the NFL stop using white stripes? Well, that was really the major reason. Playing of uh, NFL footballs did not have an issue with the night game visibility, so there was no need to make the white stripes on the footballs of the NFL. And besides, the paint that was used to make the stripes on the NFL football made the ball slippery, the player said. And the slick ball is quite difficult to play with. And it's another reason for which they stopped using stripes on the football. Now, we're talking about the NFL, not uh, other leagues or college. And then when did the NFL remove the white stripes from the football? Well, in the mid-20s, NFL footballs were made with white stripes. But when did the NFL remove the white stripes? Well, it was in 1941, really, when the NFL removed all white stripes from their footballs and they switched to black stripes on a white ball. And then, of course, you know, you look at uh, really, I think, from the not sure how far it goes back, but I can remember even in the early 60s, late 50s, they were using the regular brown colored ball with no stripes on it. So did the ball change the color? Uh, did the NFL actually change the color of the ball? And first, the footballs of the NFL used to be metallic shields along with black and silver color. So now the question is, did the NFL change the color of the ball? Well, the NFL changed the color of their football in 2020. But after 2020, the footballs are now silver, blue, and red in color. They did a makeover of their footballs in honor of the season 2020. That's considering the logos and everything that are on there. And when did the uh, 87 NFL season start and end? Well, the 87 NFL season was quite an interesting season for both football players and football lovers. Besides, the 1987 NFL season was the 68th regular season of NFL football. So when did 87 season start and end? Well, the 87 season NFL started on uh, September 13th, 1987, and the season ended on the 28th, December 1987. It has nothing to do with the football, but somebody had asked that question uh, in regard to uh, this uh, subject of the footballs. So, again, why don't the NFL footballs have white stripes? Well, there was a time when the NFL footballs had them, but they switched to making the footballs without stripes because they wanted to differentiate their footballs from the NCAA football business. And besides, the night game visibility was never an issue for the NFL, although it kind of was in the 50s. What are the uh, white lines on a football called? Well, those lines are known as yard lines, and they are made of white color. And did the NFL ever use a white football? Well, we already described that, but we'll go over it again. There was a time when NFL used white footballs for games that were played at night. 1956, NFL used white footballs. Soon after, they switched to night footballs along with white stripes. And currently, they do not use striped footballs for games. 
So that is kind of a look at, you know, the situation with uh, footballs. And, you know, it's, it, it's just interesting to note how, uh, you know, the evolution of the ball, too, when you look at it, you know, how it, um, how it came to be. It was a very interesting situation when you, when you look at it. One of the other things uh, that I wanted to go over is how Wilson and the Duke became the official NFL football. You know, how, how, did, that, how did that happen? Um, so so you know, actually throughout American sports history, there's no other brand has been partnered with uh, sports as uh, the NFL football and the, and the Duke, as they, as they call it, the Duke. No longer Wilson uh, has been in with the NFL as long as they've been there. And the center of the partnership is Wilson's iconic, the Duke football. So since the establishment of the league in 1941, the Duke has been at the heart of the game. Not only has every touchdown been scored with a Wilson football, but each NFL game ball has been expertly handcrafted in Ada, Ohio, by skilled craftsmen for decades. A lot of people... Um, really don't know that. So the long-standing heritage of the Duke began before the ball got its famous name back in 1869 when the first ever game of American football was played on the university field. That was Rutgers. We talked about that in previous shows. The first game was Rutgers uh, versus the College of New Jersey, which was Princeton. And it was played in, uh, I believe, November 5th, 1869, only a few years after the Civil War. It was played in a cow pasture in Piscataway, which is now uh, where the gym is uh, located. And they hardly, uh, they hardly have a marker for it, which is unbelievable. But that's where the uh, first uh, game was played. And so uh, early versions of the game were played with a ball that was large and round that resembled a soccer ball, and that was what the uh, Rutgers College of New Jersey game was like. And it uh, was awkward to carry and nearly impossible to throw. And as the game began to involve from running plays to more passing-dominated strategies. The ball evolved alongside it, and the formerly clunky globe-like football adopted an ovidal shape in 1897 and later in 1912 became uh, to resemble the sleek, elongated shape that we recognize today. So as the only official game ball the NFL has ever known, the Duke, uh, and of course now uh, they, they've switched to a different football, but this the Duke was used for many uh, years. Uh, NFL football has named in honor of the game's pioneering legend and New York Giants owner, Wellington Mara. So having been named by his father after the Duke of Wellington, young Mara was soon dubbed the Duke by the Giants players when he worked for the team as a ball boy in 1925. And years later, when Giants founder Tim Mara arranged the agreement which made Wilson Sport and Goods Company the official football supplier of the NFL, it seemed only fitting that the ball adopt the same nickname. So for decades, the Duke was emblazoned on the side of each and every NFL football game. Upon the uh, 1970 merger between the NFL and the American Football League, a ball design featuring an alternate logo came into production. And this design would continue to be produced until Wellington death in 2005. So to honor the memory of the beloved Giants owner, Wilson began printing the Duke into the leather paneling of the NFL footballs, immortalizing Mara's legacy and longstanding influence over the league. But what is it that makes iconic the Duke NFL football so special? Well, 
building the Duke, while it's easy to imagine the factory that produces upwards of 2,500 footballs a day, would be largely automated and machine run. This could not be further or farther, depending upon which one you want to use, um, from the truth that each the Duke NFL football is hand-produced in Wilson's Ada Ohio factory. From the cutting and stamping to sewing and lacing, each the Duke football is the combined effort of nearly two dozen expert craftspeople. So each football starts with four panels of genuine cowhide leather tanned by nearby Chicago, and these panels are cut into size and then sent to the have logos and emblems pressed into the surface of the leather. And it's here that the signature of the Duke insignia is stamped into each future game ball. From there, each panel is sewn together in order to ensure each ball is constructed to Wilson's exacting quality standards. The sewing process is especially meticulous and precise, a skill that takes some craftspeople months to master. So once the ball has been sewn together, it's turned right side out, an air bladder is inserted, and then the ball is laced and inflated. And before the Duke is ready for gameplay, it is inspected multiple times for quality assurance and imperfections. So the game may change, but the Duke expert craftsman remains the same with each evolution of the ball. The legacy of the Duke carries on and bring home the official ball of the NFL today, which is as close as a fan can get to the authentic on-the-field icon that's been passed, caught, and carried by the game's greatest since the NFL started uh, way back in 1941. Actually, the league started in 1920, but they didn't use the Duke football. Uh, you know, you look at pictures of uh, the 30s with uh, Sammy Baugh, who I was able to uh, meet several years ago. Sammy Baugh was, was a, yeah, I'll tell you, he was a, if you look at his stats, Sammy Baugh, you talk about Peyton Manning and all these guys, uh, Sammy Baugh was truly one of the great quarterbacks of all time. I mean, this guy was super. In a day and age when uh, it was an ass-kicking defense, they didn't have all these rules, you know, leather helmets, and uh, the ball was really not tapered real well. And uh, he became uh, really one of the most prolific passers uh, of uh, NFL history, and you don't really hear of him that much. Uh, he signed a Redskins helmet for me at one point, and uh, every other word was a curse word. Uh, but he was a very dynamic, a very sincere guy. And if you look at his stats, uh, you'll see that, uh, you know, how, how in the world did he become such a great passer with a football that was more like a, a watermelon? It really didn't have the taperedness. So the 1941 uh, scenario there was when they started to use this particular ball, not when the league actually started, which was 1920. So when you look at, you know, the interesting things of, of football and, you know, you, you really don't I, – I think most people don't really think about, uh, you know, the history of it, how how it's changed, how it's tapered, how they once used a uh, you know a white football, uh, and then of course you know we talked about the uh, situation a couple of shows ago uh, where we talked about the history of the forward pass, uh, the play you know with football now dominated by. Quarterbacks and of course the uh, league is is predominantly passing. Uh, no longer are running backs taken in the first you know round as they once were. It's really a quarterback and and uh, receivers league now. They make the most money, and uh, you know it's hard to imagine uh, the sport without the forward pass. Uh, 
the play, however, was illegal for nearly four decades after sports inception when passing was finally permitted. Actually, in 1906, to improve player safety, critics predicted it would dilute the sport's rugged essence and drive away fans, and it actually has had uh, the, the opposite. And football wasn't just extremely violent in those days. It was deadly. In, 18, uh, in uh, 1904, 18 football-related fatalities, mostly among prep schools. And another 19 died the following year. Universities such as Stanford, Northwestern, Duke dropped the football uh, from uh, their uh, uh, scholastic endeavors, and others threatened to do the same unless changes were made. And that was when uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and we had gone over this in a previous show about the forward pass. You can kind of look in the archives uh, for it. But uh, Theodore Roosevelt, he was an avid, avid football fan. He worried that the game could be outlawed if not made safer. More than 60 schools met after the 1905 season and approved rule book revisions. And among them were the abolition of dangerous mass formations, the creation of a neutral zone between offenses and defenses, and the doubling of the first down distance to 10 yards, and legalization of the forward pass. So although any player behind the line of scrimmage was permitted to pass, the Rules Committee imposed several restraints that hampered offenses. Passes couldn't be thrown or caught within five yards of each side of the line of scrimmage, and only the two ends on the line of scrimmage were eligible to make uh, catches. And additionally, passes that crossed the goal line resulted in touchbacks to defenses, and out-of-bounds throws were given to defenses at the spots where they left the field. And so, moreover, passes that hit the ground without being touched by any player resulted in turnovers. So the forward pass has been so well hedged about uh, with restrictions as to make it a play that must be thoroughly practiced and well executed to be of use. And that was what Walter Camp wrote. Uh, He was a staunch supporter and really one of the uh, more creators of the forward pass. Past proponents such as Georgia Tech coach John Heisman, who the Heisman Trophy is uh, named after, he believed the forward pass would inject speed and skill in the football and open up the game by compelling defenders to spread out the coverage. But opponents such as Camp believed that it emasculated the sport's brute nature. And so many, in conclusion, many uh, predict the ruination of the game through the drastic reformation reported in the New York Times of sports rule changes heading into the 1906 season. And so that was a look really at, uh, you know, the forward pass. Um, Unlike the Eastern elite, St. Louis University coach Eddie Kokums gave the new rule the old college try. Before the start of the 1906 season, he cloistered his team in Jesuit uh, retreat in Wisconsin, and as he later wrote, for the sole purpose of studying and developing the forward pass. So in the opener for St. Louis against Carroll College, September 5, 1906, Bradbury Robinson threw football's first legal forward pass. The toss hit the ground untouched, resulting in a turnover. That's how the game was played in those days. And Robinson later connected on a 20-yard touchdown pass. Thanks in part to the forward pass, undefeated St. Louis outscored its 1906 opponents 407-11. to And, you know, it goes on to talk about, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, one of the great games – of all time, 1913, up in uh, West Point, New York, home of the uh, Army cadets. Uh, Army was a very uh, tough team in those days. Uh, They uh, were favored to beat Notre Dame. Notre Dame came visiting, and the uh, forward pass 
was certainly something that was allowed but not really utilized. Uh, it's kind of like Joe Namath's white shoes. You know, not not too many players wore them. I, the only other player I knew that wore them back in the 60s was Fred Williamson of the Kansas City Chiefs. He played in Super Bowl I. Uh, I believe he wore white shoes, and I'm not sure if anybody else did. I don't, I'm not sure if they did. I don't think they did. But uh, the forward pass was kind of like the white shoes. It was there, but not too many people used it. And so Notre Dame's Gus Duraeus and Newt Rockney practiced the forward pass while they were lifeguarding together in Ohio, and the training paid off when the Irish unleashed that uh, high-flying assault at West Point, uh, and they overwhelmed Army on November 1, 1930. Dorius threw a 40-yard touchdown pass that Rockney caught in stride, and he throws uh, uh, kept coming as the Irish scored five passing touchdowns. Excuse me. Doreas completed 14 of 17 passes for 243 yards in the victory that put Notre Dame on the football map. And it said later that everybody seemed astonished. That's what Newt Rockney wrote. He said there had been no uh, hurdling, no tackling, no plunging, no crushing of fiber and sinew, just a long-distance touchdown by a rapid transit. And so the passing techniques used in the early 1900s differed from what football fans are familiar with today. And some players left their feet to make jump passes, and others tossed footballs underhanded or in, uh, in the end zone. So as the forward pass became more common, the football itself evolved from a watermelon-shaped orb that could be shot-putted to a slimmer oval that was easier to grip and could be thrown as a spiral. And, of course, you know, we talked about uh, Sammy Baugh, Davey O'Brien, winner of the 38 Heisman Trophy, employing a spread offense with two wide receivers and two slot receivers, TCU, Texas Christian University, threw the ball as many as 40 times in a game, and their star quarterback eventually took the aerial skills to the fledging National Football League. So uh, not getting off the course of the white football, but that's really uh, what has happened in sports with the football itself because it became more tapered, easier to throw. But even the pioneers of the forward pass, guys like Sammy Baugh you know, Gus Reyes, even well before him, 20 years before him, were basically throwing a watermelon, almost like a rugby-type ball, very difficult to grip uh, because the game was mostly a running game. And the early uh, NFL was that way. Uh, the forward pass was not part of uh, the NFL. It was all, you know, running. And, you know, look what's happened uh, to the sport. You know, we look back now in the 60s and we see the likes of, uh, you know, Paul Warfield and Lance Allworth, uh, you know, uh, Don Maynard, all those great players, uh, you know, uh, just goes on and on. We could, we could sit here for the next 10 minutes and list wide receivers, but there's nothing, I think, more exciting in football than to watch a long bomb uh, over-the-shoulder catch by some of the great uh, receivers of all time. And I think that, uh, you know, the football, uh, because of it, has changed and it's kept up with time. So that's kind of a look at the white football in the history of NFL, basically made uh, because they couldn't really see in the 50s when they started to use and utilize uh, night games. And then, of course, the players felt that the ball stripes, they were kind of like an enamel type of stripe, and they felt that it was slippery. Uh, there were a lot of incompletions with the white football. It was the regular uh, size and uh, weight of the regular uh, 
tan-colored football. And then, of course, you know, the Duke football, which uh, most of us grew up with, you know, the Duke. Most people wondered, you know, how it got its name. We told you about it with Wellington Mara and so forth. It was interesting with Wellington Mara. He was a guy who bought the New York Giants in uh, the 20s for $500, and uh uh, he died in 2005. I believe the New York Giants franchise now is close to $3 billion in worth. Not a bad investment for 100 years. So that's a look, really, at the uh, situation with the white football. Hope that uh, that answered some of your questions and that um, you know a little bit more about the history of the Duke football and the football in general. Well, I'll about do it for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us on Sportsbeat Radio Talk at Sports. Baseball, of course, continuing now in the last 35 games or so. Uh, the the uh, Yankees with their lead. Uh, the Guardians surprisingly leading in their division over Chicago. And, of course, you've got the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, who most people think will win the World Series. Some 20 games now in front of a talent-loaded San Diego Padres team that has no hope of catching them. We'll see how it goes. Mets and Braves fighting it out. That should be an interesting contest. But yeah, again, in sports, remember that baseball, over half the teams are not competitive. Sports Beat's been a presentation of Mountain Meadow Productions and Sports Beat Radio. And until next time, all of you have a great day and great sports. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll talk to you again.